You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Dr. Anthony Lesowitz, founder and director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and host of the podcast Climate Connections. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So what we do is we study how do people respond to the issue of climate change? So what do people around the world understand or misunderstand about the causes, the consequences, and solutions? How do they perceive the risks? So the likelihood and severity of different types of impacts from sea level rise to the health impacts. What kinds of policies do they support or oppose? And then what kinds of behaviors are people engaged in or willing to change in order to be part of climate solutions? Those are just, they're infinite. But I mean, broadly speaking, that can be how we use waste or conserve energy at home and on the road. It includes our consumer behavior. Will we prefer the products and services that are better for the climate? But also to what extent are people willing to reward or punish companies for their action or inaction on climate change? A hugely important kind of behavior is our social behavior, including communication. Do we talk about this? Or more often, why don't we talk about it? And last but not least is, of course, political behavior. What leads some people to become active citizens, to say, I'm not going to stand on the sidelines and just watch the world burn. I want to do what I can to roll up my sleeve, get involved, and make a difference in my sphere of influence. It could be your own household, your neighborhood, your local school system. It could be running for Congress and everything else in between. So just to say there are lots of different things there. And then as scientists, our ultimate question is answering why. What are the psychological, the cultural, the political reasons why some people get really engaged with this issue, others are kind of apathetic, and some are downright dismissive and hostile, or at least they are here in the United States, which thankfully is not the case in most of the rest of the world. So the why really depends on where you are. People are not all the same. There is no such thing as the public. There are many, many, many different publics within a state, within a country, within the world, right? So one of the first cardinal rules of effective communication is know your audience. Who are they? What do they know? What do they think they know? Who do they trust? Where do they get their information? What are their underlying values? And it's only once you know who they are that you as a communicator can go more than halfway to try to meet them where they are, not where you are, where they are. And that's so easy to say, but it's actually so hard for so many of us within the climate community to do because we're steeped in this issue. We want to talk about things Cities are going to be absolutely core to solving this problem, but so are rural areas. I mean, frankly, the whole world is vulnerable to climate change in different ways, and we're all bound together. Like, cities don't exist without the food that comes from the rural areas. And likewise, cities provide tremendous benefits back to rural areas, even though people don't always recognize that. So cities are going to be critical. Let's not forget we're on a planet, already has 8 billion people on it, and it's growing. And so there is a lot that we need to do to both retrofit our existing cities cities, which is expensive and hard because they were laid down sometimes thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago in a different climate with different assumptions about how one should live. Like LA was built on the highway based on the automobile. So it's very difficult for LA as a city to now go, okay, now we actually want to get back to providing rail transit for everybody. They're doing it, but it's expensive and it's hard to retrofit. But nonetheless, absolutely essential work that has to be done. But at the same time, the world is building lots and lots of new megacities, you know, that are going to house tens of millions of people. And we now have the opportunity to build them for the 21st century. We don't have to follow the same design patterns of the past. In fact, that would be stupid to use the same design patterns of the past. So this really now opens up enormous creativity and experimentation and innovation to say, okay, what are the ways that we actually want to live together, right? 
So one of the big things that we're seeing a huge shift on is that in the past, cities used to be very segregated and divided, not just in terms of people, but in terms of function. Like here's the section where everybody goes to work. And then miles away is where everybody goes shopping. And then miles away from that is where everybody goes to school. And then miles away from that is where everybody lives. So we separated out all these core functions of actual life, which meant that now we have to transit and spend hours moving ourselves and our groceries from one place to another. Well, what if you just change that design so that now you have communities where shopping, work, education, and your home are all close, are all within walking distance. And by the way, green space where you can reconnect with the natural world. And, and so what we're finding is that's overwhelmingly what people want. In fact, one of the studies has found that single thing that makes people most unhappy in America is commuting time, being stuck in traffic. That makes people more frustrated and depressed than anything. So it's just to say, this is where design can make an enormous influence on not just our carbon footprint and our carbon emissions, which of course is important, but improves our quality of life includes our health, includes our educational outcomes and so on, because now we have vibrant community, because again, we're social animals, unlike our prior structures of design. So my own background is that when I was an undergraduate, I was studying international relations. This was before the end of the Cold War. So I thought I had a long career ahead of me trying to keep the world from blowing itself with nuclear weapons. So I was studying like nuclear policy and so on. Literally six months before I graduated, the Berlin Wall came down and my international relations degree turned into a history degree like that. And so I ended up following a friend out to Aspen, Colorado with the idea that I was just going to you know, make some money and then travel around the world and try to figure out what I was going to do next. And instead, I got incredibly lucky and I fell into a position, one of the first positions at an organization called the Aspen Global Change Institute, where I spent the next four years working with the world's leading climate scientists, ozone scientists, you know, biodiversity scientists, and so on. And it changed my life. I learned so much about what was actually going on. And this is back in 1990. So long before most people were even really aware of climate change and the impacts it was already having. Long story short is that by the end, however, I was getting a little frustrated, not with the people, the scientists themselves are just phenomenal. I'm still very close friends with many, but I kept coming back to, okay, but the reason why we have climate change or ozone depletion or a biodiversity extinction crisis is because of humans. So I thought the answers to these problems don't lie in the natural sciences. The answers to these lie in the human sciences and the humanities of what is it about us that gets us into these problems in the first place? And how do we engage human beings and human societies as a way to figure out how to solve them? So that's what ultimately led me to this career where looking at, again, what are these underlying psychological, cultural, political factors that shape our ability to even recognize these problems, let alone then taking action to solve them? I will say as someone who's been working in this area for over three decades, my batteries get charged every day because I hear what people are doing. And in fact, our research tells us this as well. When we ask Americans, what gives you hope? What gives you the greatest sense that this is solvable? The number one answer by far is seeing other people taking action because we're social animals. We're hugely influenced by what we see other people saying and doing. And if your perception is that nobody talks about this and nobody's doing anything about it, then most people are just like, well, then I don't even want to think about it because I can't do anything about it. Maybe I can do some stuff on my own, but I'm not going to really engage this issue because this is too big. That can be a conclusion. But when people hear about all the millions of people in this country and around the world who are are in fact taking action at every single level, people find that one, very, very inspiring, but more importantly, it's empowering because they see that I can do this too. 
And again, you don't have to run for Congress, though please do if you feel so inclined, but you don't have to. There are literally so many things that you can do within your own life, your work life or your kid's school. Like there's a major need right now to transition all school buses. Like if you've ever driven behind a diesel bus with the smoke billowing out, you know that's not something you want to breathe. We put our kids on those buses, right? So we need to transition to electric buses and there's tremendous financial resources to help communities do that. And there's an incredibly important role that parents can play in their school to demand that transition as quickly as possible. So it's just one of literally thousands of things that people are doing all over the country. Yeah. And it's not just a blue or a red issue because a lot of times it's been pegged like divide and conquer. Democrats were more involved traditionally. You know, as you go to those red states where there's vast wild areas, you can engage people with what they're concerned with. And it might be that they love hunting and fishing, but you can't do that because there's no more fish in the rivers or there's declining numbers. So if you think about, as you say, hone the story to what they appreciate and love. So it's not just a story of sacrifice. It's a story of what's deep to you and what you care about. Yeah, and that's exactly what our research shows. Again, we took one of our radio stories, which featured the voice of a hunter fisherman in North Carolina. Fabulous North Carolina drawl. I could sit on this guy's porch and just listen to him tell stories for hours. Talking about how he is seeing these changes in his own environment, where, for instance, the streams where he had learned how to fish from his parents and grandparents are now too warm to hold fish. Like the fish can't survive in these rivers and streams. And hunters and fishermen all over the country are seeing these changes. Ducks aren't coming back the way they used to. The game isn't where it has historically been. That the, the seasons have totally shifted. And again, that the rivers and streams are getting too warm now to even be viable for certain trout species. And so in this story, he's talking about what he's observing and how sad that makes him because it's this loss of identity and tradition that he won't be able to hand these off over to his children and grandchildren. But then he pivots and says, but this isn't just about, you know, sportsmen wanting to catch more fish. This is about the larger problem that climate change presents to us all. It's a national security issue. It's so much more than just about fish. So we tested that story with uh, a variety of different people, Democrats and Republicans, uh, and found that actually it works across the board because everybody can identify with this guy. Okay, everybody, even if you're not a fisherman, his story is so powerful that people move. They're convinced. They're like, oh, I didn't realize this was actually having real effects on real people, real Americans right here, right now. And so it's just to say storytelling is still one of the most powerful ways we have to communicate from one person to another from one person to millions and from millions back to one. How can we, you know, work? How can we work with that? A sense of anxiety is important. It's realism. But how can we harness that kind of urgency without becoming overwhelmed, which I know is a concern for a lot of our listening students? A sense of anxiety is important. It's realism. But how can we harness that kind of urgency without becoming overwhelmed, which I know is a concern for a lot of our listening students? So we've been studying this actually nationally. And in our most recent study, we think that there's about 3% of Americans who are experiencing what we would call debilitating climate anxiety. In other words, it's now affecting daily life. Like they're unable to make plans about the future or, you know, it's affecting their overall well-being and so on. So that's maybe 10 million people. That is not an insignificant thing. And I think that is a population that has grown over time. So that's one group that we absolutely need to be supportive of. And for anyone listening who feels like they're in that, don't try to tough this out by yourself. Again, find other people to talk to. Talk to your friends. Talk to your family members. Talk to mental health professionals. That's why they're here is to help you 
begin to navigate some of these things. But what's really fascinating is that there's a larger group of people, that's about 8% of the country, that have experienced one or more attribute of what we call climate uh, anxiety. But when we look at their actions, they're far more likely to actually be taking action. Okay, They're far more likely to be making changes in their own life to address climate change. And they're far more likely to be working with organizations, to be calling their member of Congress, to be donating money to environmental groups, to actually joining as a volunteer with climate groups to demand greater action. And frankly, at the larger scale, Americans as a whole, the whole country, still needs to become more worried about climate change, not less, because worry turns out to be an incredibly powerful motivator of action as long as it doesn't get so extreme that it becomes pathological. Yeah, there's so much that needs to be done. Climate change is still not well taught across most of the country. But again, this is one of those areas where, okay, you're a young person. You could be in elementary school, middle school, or high school. You're passionate about climate change. Well, what are you doing to demand that your school teach climate change? Okay, Kids are banding together. I'll just one group I'll point to is Action for Climate Emergency, which supports kids to basically say, let us not only demand that we get taught this material, but they actually form together to do things like energy audits of their school. Turns out the school is also a user of fossil fuels. So what could we do? And so this actually becomes a learning opportunity where you can use the school as a living laboratory and say, where's our energy being used? Where's our energy being wasted? Maybe we should think about changing out our light bulbs. Maybe we should paint our roofs white to reflect more sunlight, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then bringing these findings to school administrators administrators with solutions where kids are finding, hey, you know what? If we replaced all those oil burning furnaces with solar power, we would save $200,000 a year, which means that you could pay your teachers better or you could hire more teachers. So it's just to say that the solutions have now gotten so good and so effective that in many cases, kids are finding they can actually save the school money, which absolutely gets the attention of any principal. So as well as just being able to say, look, we want to have some ownership of our education and we care about this issue. We know we're going to inhabit a world that is being increasingly affected by climate change. We want to know more about it. So please incorporate this into to the science classroom, the social studies classroom, the English classroom, et cetera, et cetera. We have to remember people still read books. People still read actual newspapers on print. People still listen to radio. People still watch television. It's just that we're getting additional layers and layers and layers of new channels that can communicate with audiences. And so again, that's why it's so important in this increasingly fragmented communication landscape with all these new ways to reach people why you need to be really strategic, because in the end, you only have so much money, time, talent, resource. And so you have to be very careful and thoughtful about where are you going to commit those very limited resources to have the greatest impact. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.